We're launching a new series today, and the series is titled Go and Be. And I've kind of foreshadowed this a couple of times in our last series where we uh, went through Come and See and followed the Gospel of John as that phrase keeps popping up over and over, Come and See, Come and See. And we see Jesus inviting the earliest disciples to come and see what his ministry was all about. And then, right at the end, the last time that he appears before them face-to-face in the Gospel of John, I'm sorry, in John 20, he shows up and restores Peter in John 21, so I got ahead of myself a little bit. But as he, as he visits them in the upper room and as he interacts with them in that space, he says in John 20, 21, we looked at this last week, that as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And we talked about this idea last week that we are a sent people following a sent Savior. That we are sent into this world. That it's not just come and see, it's also go and be. And as we go out into the world and we take Christ into the places where he has placed us, then we cast the invitation, come and see, come and see. And people come and see, and then they go and be. And then more people come and see, and more people go and be. And all the seats fill, and we add services, and we do all the things that we need to do to accommodate all the people that are coming and seeing and going and being. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That's the vision that Jesus cast for the church, that we would be a sent people following a sent Savior into this world. And so, as we continue, we are continuing with a new series that really continues the Come and See series titled Go and Be. And each week we're going to consider something that we are to go and be as we go out into the world. This week we're going to talk about Go and Be Christ-like. Go and be Christ-like. We're still going to be in the Gospel of John for at least one more week uh, as we look at John chapter 8 this week, and, uh, and then we'll see where we go from there. i got a couple of different ideas. We might get into Acts, where the church decides to go and be, to follow Christ's commission, to go and be his witnesses, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun with this. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 11. If you've got one of the pew Bibles that are in the seats uh, in front of you, you can pick one of those up and go to page 1661. And I want to say just a few words about this text. If you look at it right at the end of chapter 7, uh, chapter 7, verse 53, and on through chapter 8, verse 11, there's a little note in your Bible probably. And it'll say something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John seven fifty three. 8 through 11. What that means is that, you know, there's a lot of different manuscripts. There's not just one. There's a number of different manuscripts as scribes would write these things out and they would go into circulation. And some of the oldest ones don't have this section of scripture. And yet from the earliest church councils all the way through the Protestant Reformation, uh, the the Catholic Church Bibles, all of the, the different times when they've had opportunity to say, is this valid? Is this really scripture? Over and over and over it has been affirmed as scripture. It has been validated as scripture and deemed authentic and consistent with the whole of scripture to the point that all the modern translations include this passage and scholar after scholar has affirmed uh, that this gives us a very a very poignant look into the person of Jesus Christ that there's nothing here that's inconsistent with anything else in Scripture. So I just want to kind of cover that at the beginning so you understand the process that has gone, uh, undergone to, to validate this 
as Scripture, and it is very much uh, Scripture. And not only that, several scholars have pointed out that it fits very, very well here that there would be an unnatural break from 752 to 812 if this story wasn't in there, that there are things that come after it that point back to it contextually, and there are things that sort of set it up. And we know from the Gospel of John that he is the most intentional in context and in the stories that he chooses to include. So it makes a lot of sense that this is here and that John would record this Scripture uh, in a way that, uh, that other gospel writers do not. So with that said, I want to read uh, verses 2 through 11 uh, to you, and I want you to read along with me in, in the Bible that's in your hands. At dawn, he, Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If anyone of you is without sin... Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. So I want to walk back through this, paying attention to a couple of verses in particular, and then really zero in on what I think it means to go and be Christ-like in a, in a particular uh, nuanced understanding of that uh, today. So in verse 3, this kind of can fly right over our heads if we weren't aware of the context and the setting, but it was extremely disrespectful. Most people regarded Jesus as a rabbi. So for them to, to barge in in the middle of him teaching the word of God to, to make this spectacle uh, was extremely disrespectful. It was disrespectful to Jesus. It was disrespectful to the temple, to the setting that they were in, and it was disrespectful to the word of God. And it really points out the ulterior motives and what was really driving these uh, teachers of the law, these scribes, these Pharisees, uh, to do that. They were really trying to, to pin Jesus into a corner. And, uh, and as they did so many times, it never, never really worked. And in verse 4, the wording that they, that they use there is really significant because it's saying, in some translations, it says, caught in the very act of adultery. And they're establishing that, that this has taken place and that there were at least two witnesses that... that viewed it because in the in the law it wasn't just one person's testimony it had to be the testimony of two witnesses for something to be considered and most scholars look at the way that they explain this and the way that this whole thing happened and say it was almost certainly a setup it was almost certainly entrapment that had taken place it was almost certainly intentional that this scene would play out that this woman would be caught in the act of adultery and then brought it wasn't coincidence it was intentional and it, it really shows the, the viciousness of this agenda that, 
that the people had, that the, the teachers of the law, and the low value that they placed on women at this time, which is really just tragic. And we see over and over in the Gospels and over and over in Scripture, Jesus holding women up and elevating the status of women and treating women with dignity, and we see that continue through the New Testament. Interestingly enough, they were sinning by bringing this, this trial, so to speak, into the temple courts because the law was very clear in Deuteronomy 17.5. It says that you take this out to the gates of the city, that you don't do this in the middle of the town, in the middle of the city, certainly not on the temple mount. So in their zeal to try to catch Jesus in a crime against the law, they had committed a crime against the law. In verse 5, we see where they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? Well, It doesn't just say stone such women. It says stone the woman and the man in the law. It's very clear. And there's no man present. So they've sinned twice already. They They have sinned two times in presenting this whole situation. And it tells us in verse 6, they're trying to trap Jesus, trying to pit him against Moses. But in so doing, they they wandered into breaking the law at least twice. You can't commit adultery alone. Okay? There was obviously a second person involved, and he is nowhere to be seen. And it's interesting that the law required both of them to be stoned and they're only focused on one person which shows the the chauvinism that was so present that I mentioned just a minute ago. And it's so powerful the way Jesus chooses to respond. And I never knew this before uh, before this week as I was uh, reading into this and studying into, into this passage. Jesus actually references scripture in his response. And I had never been aware of that before. But when Jesus says in verse 7, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. He's actually referring to Deuteronomy 17.7, which says that it is the witnesses who have to throw the first stone, which was a really interesting uh, thing that God put into the law, into the Old Testament law, that you couldn't just go out and start accusing people. You were going to have blood on your hands. If you made a false accusation that led to somebody being stoned, you had to cast the first stone. And so when Jesus says... Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. They knew he was referring to the the law of Moses, that they were trying to pin him in, and that he had them. He had them because they had broken two statements in the law of Moses. One, by bringing it into the temple court instead of doing it outside. And two, by leaving the man out of it and only bringing the woman. And so we see in this that it's possible to be partly biblical, isn't it? It's possible to focus on one or two little pieces to the exclusion of the rest of the story and go and be biblical without being Christ-like. The last thing I want to look at here before we move on is verse 11 and the way Jesus interacts with her. And I think it's very much the same way that Jesus interacts with us in our sin. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and leave your life of sin. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. Jesus didn't say, go ahead and sin it up. Go have a blast sinning. Enjoy it. No. He says, I don't condemn you. Interestingly enough, he was the only person there who was without sin, right? So in verse 7, when he says, let the, fir- that, that the only one among you without sin, let them be the first to cast stones. It was Jesus. Jesus was the one there without sin. Jesus was the one that could have picked up and thrown the first stone. Jesus was the only one qualified to do so. Now, he wasn't a witness of what had taken place, but he was qualified in that regard. 
He was the only one qualified to judge, and yet he was the only one willing to die to pay the penalty for her sins. Everyone else had a rock in their hand. Jesus was willing to go to the cross to pay the penalty for the sin that this woman had just committed. He was willing to go to the cross to pay the penalty for the selfishness and the arrogance and the chauvinism and the the bloodthirstiness of the scribes and the Pharisees as well. And so when he says, go and sin no more, he proves he's the only one there willing to give forgiveness as well. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is free, but it is not cheap. I ran across that in my study this week from Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe is one of my favorite uh, Bible commentators. And he points out that to this woman, the forgiveness was free, but it was not cheap. It cost Jesus something. And the one who extends the forgiveness to her is the one who had paid the price to be able to extend that forgiveness. And then he closes with the instruction to go and leave the life of sin, leave the life of sin, which indicates that maybe he knows that this isn't the first time that she has committed this sin. We don't know that for sure. There's a lot of things we don't know about in this passage. We don't know what he was writing in the ground. We don't know a number of things, but there's an indication here that perhaps this was a life of sin. This was a lifestyle of sin, which makes the forgiveness even greater. And I would imagine that she went and left her life of sin that she went having had that interaction with Jesus, having come and seen Jesus and seen grace and seen mercy and seen forgiveness, that she went and left the life of sin. So when we talk about going and being Christ-like, my hope is that we would walk out of here wanting to be the most like Jesus in this story. However we may have walked in, maybe we walked in identifying most with the woman caught in sin, bearing the shame of our sin, bearing the shame. And if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you don't know that he died on a cross to forgive your sins so that you don't have to carry the weight of that guilt and that shame, then you might have walked in feeling like the woman, caught, feeling exposed, feeling the shame and the guilt. Or it's possible that some of us walk in or walk into the world and into the places that we go identifying a little bit more with the scribes and the Pharisees. Not maybe to that same extent, but any time that we settle for being biblical or at least partially biblical rather than being Christ-like, we are missing the mark. We are missing the opportunity to bring Christ into a situation when we choose instead to bring judgment and condemnation into a situation. And that's really what they were doing. So I think we can agree that sin is bad and righteousness is good. Does anybody object to that statement that sin is bad and righteousness is good? We're kind of on the same page with that, aren't we? So I don't think we have to spend a ton of time on the sin. Most of us in this modern day and age know several people, several families who have been impacted by adultery. We don't have to spend a ton of time on the subject of the adultery, of the sin. But we can spend some time on the idea of dropping the stones. On the idea of dropping the stones together. That maybe it's too big of a vision to expect all of Christianity to drop its stones. But I certainly hope it's not too big of a vision for Linwood Wesleyan Church to drop the stones with Jesus. And to make sure that we are not walking in here to pick up a stone or two to go out there and throw at someone. Because I think the world has probably had about enough of stone-throwing Christians. 
I don't think it's yet to tire of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if you notice, the first four songs we sang were all about grace. This is amazing grace. His mercy is more. Great is his faithfulness. New mercies every morning. And then about our identity in Christ, who we are. Because it is not until we forget who we are in Christ that we would ever consider picking up a stone to throw at somebody else. So I want to spend the rest of the time talking about that. And I want to give credit where credit is due. Maybe it's, uh, you know, I got threatened with a failing grade, a zero on any paper that I plagiarized in seminary. So I don't want you to think that all of this is my own idea. I read a book this summer called Drop the Stones. And uh, I had a friend who used to say it was a pebble in my mental shoe. Like, if you've ever had a pebble in your shoe, you can shake it out of there every now and then. But later on, it's going to work its way right back under your heel, isn't it? And it just stays there. And I read this book, and I, I was encouraged, and I was challenged, and I was really mad a couple of times. And I don't give it to you as a, as a wholehearted endorsement, okay? Because I don't give any book a wholehearted endorsement except for this one. But I can tell you that it was a valuable book for me to read. And in that book, he talks about this, this story. And he talks about the stones that we are all too eager and all too willing to pick up and carry into the world and throw. Whether we do it face-to-face or behind someone's back or on social media or the different ways that we have to do that. And so if we talk about the world kind of being tired of stone-throwing Christians, but not yet tired of grace and mercy and forgiveness, which one was Jesus? Which one did Jesus bring into the world? Did he bring a stone-throwing mentality into the world, or did he bring grace and love and mercy and forgiveness? And I know, because I said the same thing when I read the book, what about the sin? What about the sin, right? We talked about sin. Sin's bad. Righteousness is good. I would remind you that the sin is against God and he can deal with it. And he has not enlisted us into some vacancy in the Trinity where we need to go and be the Holy Spirit for everybody. We need to be wise, yes. We need to be discerning, yes. But we do not need to be eager to judge and condemn and throw stones. And I love this quote from Judah Smith. God doesn't share our rating system. To him, all sin is equally evil. And all sinners are equally lovable. Because I've noticed in my own life and I've noticed in the lives of other Christians and in conversations and the things we talk about and TV preachers and everything else, most of us put a little bit of a ranking order on sin. And we say, well, this one and this one and this one are not too bad. These ones are pretty serious. Those, those are absolutely horrible. And if you notice, most people, the ones that are not too bad are the ones that they struggle with. The ones that are kind of okay and kind of not are maybe they dabble into it every now and then, get tempted every now and then. The ones that are an abomination are the ones that they don't struggle with, right? And so that's why it's important that God does not share our rating system. To him, all sin is equally evil and all sinners are equally lovable. That's why we have to leave the judging and the condemning to him. And not try to take it on ourselves. Because I can speak for myself that I tend to judge myself by my intentions. Anybody else? Even if it doesn't go well, well, yeah, but I had good intentions. I didn't mean for it to go that way. Yet I judge others by their actions. I see the actions. I don't really care too much about the intentions. And if we're not careful, we slip into that. 
And we tend to think that we deserve the God of the New Testament, but they deserve, whoever they are, whoever those people are, they deserve the God of the Old Testament, right? They deserve the wrath and the judgment, but we deserve Jesus. Anybody else? I hear crickets in here, so I'm probably touching on a nerve, and that's okay. I think I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's in my job description to meddle. It's in my job description to not pull back from a subject like this. Because I see it all around. Not necessarily, I'm not singling anybody here out. I haven't seen it here. But I've seen it in Christianity. And it's a black eye for Jesus every single time that we go out into the world with a handful of stones looking for someone to throw them at. And here's the quote that really stuck with me. And I've journaled about it. And I've uh, thought about it. And I've reflected on it. And I've talked about it with people. This is the quote from Carlos Rodriguez who wrote the book. And he said this right in the middle of the book. Stoning the woman who was caught in the act of adultery was biblical, but it was not Christ-like. Stoning that woman was biblical. There was a biblical basis to do it, but it was not Christ-like. And Christ himself embodied the word. John himself, in the opening sentence of this, says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus is the word made flesh. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, is this beautiful poem about how Jesus represents the Word coming to life in human form and pointing out with crystal clarity a view of God. And as I read that quote and journaled on that quote and reflected on that quote, that stoning the woman who was caught in the act of adultery was biblical, but it was not Christ-like, I asked myself, how many times have I settled for just being biblical and not being Christ-like? How many times have I? And as I self-assessed on that, it's less in the last few years than it was 10 or 12 years ago. I think I've told you I'm a recovering Pharisee, that that was, that was kind of how I entered in. I, I, I was very Pharisaical. I was very to the letter of the law in my orientation towards the law, towards grace. But Scripture tells us that Jesus came full to the brim of grace and truth. Full to the brim of grace and truth. He's the only one qualified to judge anyone. And we have to be careful because just because we're using Bible verses to judge people does not automatically mean that we are judging them biblically. It doesn't mean that we're being Christ-like with them. If our major is in truth, but our minor is in love, we're going to keep sounding out of tune. If we're going to go and be Christ-like, we're going to go and be full of grace and truth. Not just truth. Not just truth. So our bottom line today is that you can be biblical without necessarily being Christ-like. But you cannot be Christ-like without also being biblical. And the air quotes are important. If you're listening on the podcast, I'm doing air quotes around the word biblical. Because you can go and be biblical, somewhat biblical, partially biblical. You can go with your, with your scriptures that point out why you're right, but not be Christ-like. And not have answered the question, what would Jesus do the right way? But you cannot be Christ-like without also being biblical because he was the word made flesh. That's why I have to spend time in it every day. Spend time in it with Jesus every day. Spend time interacting with it, with Jesus every day. Prayerfully reading scripture. Prayerfully seeking to apply it to ourselves first. Not just to others. Not just to those people. Not just to someone else. And so I wonder, what if instead of being anti, you fill in the blank... 
anti-whatever, we were known as being pro-hope, pro-redemption, pro-grace. What if the church was known by what it is for instead of what it is against? Do you think there would be 1,600 or probably more than that now, 1,600 different denominations of the Protestant Christian faith if we were known for what we were for instead of what we are against? Every little split, every little schism, Somebody saying, no, I'm going to be against that. I'm going to leave that and be over here. What if we were known for being pro-hope, pro-redemption, pro-grace? And I got a little illustration here. You probably wondered what's in the, what's in the jar. And uh, I went around the property out here, and I, I looked for a couple of stones. And I thought, yeah, we got some nice rocks here. We got a couple that are way too big to pick up. But there's a couple here. And I just thought, you know, there's an interesting visual that we get if we start to say, okay, I'm going to get, you know, this one. This one's for uh, kind of a minor sin, not a big sin, just a little sin. But if I see that today, I'm going to be ready. I've got, I've got my stone. I can throw it. And this one's for a little bit bigger sin. You know which ones those are, right? A little bit bigger. And this is for the really big sin. Man, if I see that thing happen, I'm going to take it out. And I'm going to hold these like this. And then I got a handful of little rocks just in case. Whoops, dropped one. Just in case I see some little sins, I'll be ready. I can throw a rock right at them. And so, so many people, maybe not at Linwood, but so many people walk through life like this. And when we see somebody who is hurting, when we see somebody who needs help, how are we going to help them with our arms full of rocks and our hands full of rocks? We gotta get we gotta get rid of this. We gotta drop the stones. We gotta be willing to go through life with our hands open. What if we were to drop the stones and walk open handed into a world that desperately needs the grace and the redemption and the hope that we ourselves have received? What if we went open handed into the world and, and found people who were sinning and instead of condemning the sin, say, What is it that what is it that happened to you that, that made you choose that? What if the woman caught in adultery, if they had said, what has happened in your life that you feel that this is your only option? If this is a lifestyle of sin, and we can assume prostitution, what has happened? Had your husband died and there was nobody there to care for you and provide for you, and this was the only way that you could earn a living? What if that question was asked instead of, oh, we got Jesus now. Come on, we're going to take you before him. We're going to pin him to the wall. We're going to paint him into a corner. He's not going to be able to get out, and this whole thing is going to blow up in his face. No. What if we walk through life looking to give a hand up and looking for people who are struggling and helping, connecting, really connecting, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, person-to-person? You see, Jesus was not sent from heaven with an armful of stones to throw at us. John 3.17 says, The Father sent him into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He does not send us into the world to condemn the world. He says, as the Father has sent me, not to condemn, but to save. So I send you, not to condemn, but to save. Because you can be biblical without necessarily being Christ-like, but you cannot be Christ-like without being truly and authentically biblical. So my hope and my prayer is that The Holy Spirit has tapped you on the shoulder at some point in here 
and helped you see an area where maybe you could be a little bit more grace-based, a little bit more mercy-oriented, a little bit more forgiving. Linking arms with Jesus in the ministry of reconciliation, where we go and we reconcile people to people and people to God, people to people and people to God. That's what Jesus came to do. That is what he sends us to do. And so when we talk about going and being Christ-like, I encourage you to drop the stones and to reach out your hand and connect with someone. However you choose to respond to this message, I hope you'll respond in faith. I hope you'll risk something for God this week as a response to this message, that you'll have a conversation with somebody that you've been afraid to approach because maybe you didn't throw stones, but, but you certainly wanted to, or you threw them inside. And there's a person, there's a, a group of people that you could reach out and build a relationship with and offer grace and mercy. Maybe somebody of a different political persuasion or somebody of a different sexual orientation. You don't have to condone the choice that they're making. But you can reach across the aisle, so to speak. You can reach out and connect with a person that Jesus died for. You can go and be Christ-like this week. And the world is aching for it. And I hope and I pray that we will be a people who drop the stones and go into the world to be Christ-like. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word, even when it challenges us, even when it gets under our skin and becomes a a pebble in our mental shoe. We thank you that you said to each and every one of us when we came to you and you saw our sin and you saw our shame, you looked at us and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. God, help us to go and be Christ-like in this world, to go and to be good news, to go and to bring reconciliation, to go and to carry your message into this world. However we respond, Lord, I pray that we respond in faith. I pray that your will will be done in your way, that your word will go forth in us and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The altars are open. You're welcome to come to pray. If you pray in the middle two altars, you'll be able to pray alone. If you pray on the outside, someone will come and pray with you. Put a hand on your shoulder. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. Coming forward to an altar doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It means there's something right. It means God is getting through. It means someone needs to be interceded for. It means that you're coming forward in faith. May you respond in faith today.